This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable. Our guest for this episode is a two-time ESL quarterfinalist in Worlds, a two-time Octo finalist in UADC, and also a national grand finalist. They've been working to forward gender equality and equity through their work at the Philippine Commission on Women, which is, uh, which is an agency that was created by the Magna Carta of Women. Um, welcome to the show, Rene Gandesa. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a motion contributor for um, our tournament. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you guys. Yeah, welcome to our show. So before we get started with the motions, um, which I really, I really liked. Um, we have to ask first something general about gender as a theme. So what do you think makes gender unique as a theme, and what do you think debaters have to keep in mind when they encounter motions and a set like the one that you set here in this tournament? Um, I think what makes gender motions interesting is that firstly, it's so ubiquitous that you come to expect every single tournament is going to have it. So it's not something that's uh, going to surprise anyone. It's not something that uh, you come in a tournament and uh, find yourself uh, getting flustered when a gender motion appears. But at the same time, what makes it interesting is its familiarity also results to uh, oftentimes a lack of a nuanced debating uh, to the motion. Because what's interesting about uh, gender motion is the themes surrounding it and the issues and the controversies surrounding gender debates in general uh, tend to be recurring. Um, However, the nuances are very different depending on the context, uh, the time, and the actors that are involved. And a lot of these specific nuances uh, often get, lo- get lost in the process. Uh, so I think uh, ultimately what makes it interesting is that, uh, one, it's very accessible to everyone. Um, it's very difficult to botch a gender debate once you've understood the basics of it. But at the same time, that's also the reason why it becomes a slightly challenging motion. Um, because of its familiarity, a lot of people would run conventional arguments, but losing the new ones in the process. And I think uh, there's also a special mention to the fact that um, our personal background when it comes to gender and our experience of gender in general uh, also shapes uh, how we approach the motion. I've heard a couple of debaters over the years say things along the lines of, uh, because I'm not a girl or because I'm not an LGBTQI person, I'm not as certain as to how to approach it. So there's a lot of sensibilities that needs to be factored in as well, especially when you have to debate for or against a specific minority group that you're not necessarily a part of. So uh, those are some of the things that I think uh, make gender motions unique, uh, but at the same time, things that I think debaters should always keep in mind as well. 
Thank you for that. Actually, I was thinking about sort of the same things earlier before we started recording, like my own personal experiences with gender emotions is that sometimes depending on the context of the round, like who I'm against or what the motion is, there are sometimes I feel like I might not be the best to speak about this issue um, in a manner sort of pretends to be authoritative. But anyway, um, let's move on to the first motion, which is about whether or not Filipino feminists um, should regret the promotion of Colonel Rehano as the first female police chief in the NCR police office. Um, actually, the first question I wanted to ask is, um, part of the debate is who are Filipino feminists and what should the feminist movement even be? Um, but I think it's a big mistake for any team to assume that all Filipino feminists are the same, like it's not a monolith, um, or that every single feminist believes in exactly the same things. But on the other hand, at the same time, prime minister and leader of opposition have to characterize them in a way that everyone will agree with like the definition, like this is what the Filipino feminist is. So my first question is, is there a basic or value neutral or universally acceptable or agreeable definition or characterization of Filipino feminists that government and opposition can both debate on? Okay, uh, thank you. So the first thing I think that all teams need to agree with is that there is an existing Filipino feminist movement. They may not be as organized as the groups that we have uh, in Western liberal democracies, but there exists a Filipino feminist movement uh, within the country. So that's the first one. Uh, second, because there is an existing Filipino feminist movement in the country, it's also important for teams to understand that there are specific nuances to Filipino feminism uh, that they cannot simply just substitute the analysis for it or the characterization for it by borrowing or copying characterizations of how uh, feminist movements in Western liberal democracies function. Um, a little bit of matter about the Philippine, uh, Filipino feminist movements. Um, their role actually in the global feminist uh, agenda is quite remarkable because, uh, for example, one of the landmark uh, convention or agreement, international agreement that we have uh, when it comes to uh, protecting women's rights and advancing women's rights is what we call the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDO. And Filipina, uh, a Filipina was actually actively involved in the crafting of it and lobbying it uh, in the United Nations. And after that, uh, there's what we call the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, where they tried to specify more uh, the areas of vulnerabilities that women experience in line with the CEDO. And once again, this uh, global gathering of women uh, was chaired by a Filipina. It's actually uh, former CHED Commissioner Patricia Liquanan. And ever since, Filipinos have been quite active in uh, advancing women's uh, rights um, globally. But locally as well, uh, this is where we get to see the manifestations of it in terms of how um through grassroots Filipino movements, um, the Philippines is and has consistently been one of the 
uh, countries in the world that has the narrowest uh, gender gap between male and uh, between men and women. And it wasn't uh, until just recently that the Philippines no longer ranks in the top 10 countries with the narrowest gender gap uh, between men and women. Um, additionally, in specific areas such as uh, women, peace, and security, the Philippines is the first country in Asia, uh, in Asia to have its national action plan on women, peace, and security. And this is something that uh, was started by uh, grassroots Filipina, uh, Filipina uh, movement that, uh, that initiated uh, crafting it by going to communities and partnering with government agencies before the government uh, took in and uh, took in the agenda and created the national action plan itself. Um, so those are just some tidbits. The other thing I think that um, debaters should agree on when it comes to um, Filipino feminists is that there are still rights uh, that are afforded to our Western liberal sisters uh, that is not as accessible in the Philippines. For instance, uh, access to institutions like uh, institutional remedies like divorce, for example. There is still a lot of legislation that we legislations that we have that are not exactly women friendly. Uh, things such as uh, the punishment for concubinage and that of adultery. It still slightly uh, favors men. Uh, women's access to uh, political participation is still very limited, and one of the factors that uh, removed us from the top 10 countries in the gender gap index. So I think the second uh, the second thing that all teams should agree on is that uh, there are some gains that the feminist movement uh, has generated and has institutionalized in the country, but there are still a lot of things that it needs working on, specifically on areas of uh, participation, empowerment, and representation. Um, and leading to the uh, motion at hand, I think one very important thing that uh, all teams need to agree with is how uh, the Philippine National Police is a traditionally masculine and patriarchal institution. And there's a reason why um, the promotion of Colonel Rehano is a big discussion because on the one hand, um, she is the first uh, woman uh, to reach that position, but on the other hand, it, it also becomes a decision point in terms of where feminists uh, should lay their support, whether they see this as a welcome progress uh, for women representation in a traditionally masculine and uh, patriarchal institution, but it's also uh, another thing to see how women uh, and women's voices get co-opted by that same institution, but uh, but then have this uh, veneer of legitimacy because they now have a woman's face uh, representing them and becoming the uh, symbol of women empowerment within that particular uh, institution. Are you like the point about representation and participation? Um, but my next question is, 
Is there anything special about the kind of participation and representation that you would generate from being a police chief? Like, um, how important really is the position itself? Like, what power does it have? Um, what decisions can um, can Colonel Rihanna make in her position now? Um, and especially in relation to um, feminism, like, what powers do they enjoy that can help them bridge the gap or i guess lessen the amount of like the the patriarchal nature of of the police force okay um so there are different possible approaches uh to that i think the first one is uh just the general idea of her being a person of power within the National Capital Region Police Office, which means that a lot of administrative decisions in terms of policy, uh, in terms of uh, human resource development, capacity building, uh, gender sensitivity training, culture sensitivity training, um, legal training that the uh, police officers are going to have uh, will be approved by her and will be mobilized by her. Um, that's that's important. But at the same time, when it comes to decision making, she's also going to sit in the table where women are generally not participating in. Uh, so in terms of lending uh, her voice and her unique lived experience as a woman, um, that's going to be factored in and that's going to be considered um in the decision making within the larger institution of the police of uh, police force uh but at the same time uh people who are working with her people who've never had a female uh chief officer uh and then realizing uh that it's possible for women to lead them just as efficiently if not better compared to their male counterparts uh perhaps uh, whether it's consciously or unconsciously changes their perception towards women. Uh, a lot of women among the ranks as well can potentially cha- change their perception in terms of how far they can go uh, in their careers. Like they're not only individuals that will be assigned to do uh, admin work and be tied to the desk or be uh, assigned to traditionally gendered uh, offices such as women and child protection deaths or uh, addressing violence against women and their children, now they can see that they can actually lead an entire uh, regional office. But at the same time, there's also a specific nuance to NCR because uh, one of the uh, controversial things about uh, the National Capital uh, Region Police Office is that a lot of the killings that happened during the war on drugs uh, were concentrated in the national capital region. So this also uh, factors in a lot of the gendered uh, perspective when it comes to dealing with these issues. A lot of the people that were left behind by the war on drugs uh, are women or young girls who are already orphaned because their parents are probably killed off uh, during the process. Um, Apart from that, uh, her influence as well in terms of the direction of policing 
and pub, uh, public order is also something that can be um, considered by the teens. Uh, there's a lot of studies that show that uh, women in peacekeeping forces and women in peace tables and women in positions of power in relation to peace and security significantly changes the direction, making the process a little more humane, uh, making the use of force less likely, uh, becoming a first resource, um, allowing for more community engagement or, and more uh, people-centered approach. And this, this bit that I'm going to add now is something that uh, teams that have read her profile or are personally familiar with her background would know as well. Uh, Colonel Rehano is actually quite an interesting figure, at, at least for me who has worked uh, within the Philippine Commission on Women, because uh, Colonel Rehano has uh, served as a gender development focal person uh, for the Philippine National Police, which means that one, she is familiar with the legal mandates requiring uh, the sensitivity in particular to gender dimension uh, in the police forces and the peacekeeping forces. Uh, second, uh, during her reign, there's been a lot of uh, improvement in when it comes to women participation and empowerment within the Philippine National Police. And if I recall correctly, it was also through her uh, direction that the requirement of gender sensitivity to incoming police officers uh, became a regular practice within the organization. And at the same time, um, it was also through her leadership and in and uh, direction that uh, the Philippine National Police's uh, expenditure, gender and development uh, budget allocation has increased. Uh, so I think uh, these are also things that uh, people can factor in if they have a bit more idea about uh, Colonel Rehano as a person. So I really like the discussion so far because I think it encapsulates well like what both sides need to be defending. So on one hand, you do have empowerment for women, but on the other hand, you do empower as well the police that has been oppressive towards women for the longest time. But in debates like these, I wanted to ask if I know it's a gender theme, but would it also be possible to bring in politics into the mix? For example, like, is her presence, for example, as a feminist or as someone with a background in gender, does it embolden the hold, for example, of this current administration? Is that an angle do you think um, debaters can explore as well? Okay, uh, first and foremost, I think uh, what you mentioned, Nina, is something that all debaters should do whenever they experience or whenever they debate gendered motions, and that is to understand that uh, gender issues are not a standalone issue, but gender issues intersect with other uh, social issues such as politics, uh, etc. So uh, to answer your question, uh, it is very important to consider that because if you look at how the Duterte administration tries to ward off uh, a lot of questions about the president's misogyny and sexism, uh, whether in his, it's in his jokes or official pronouncements, is for them to refer to the development that is done in Davao. And uh, admittedly, Davao is one of the more progressive uh, cities and local government units in the country when it comes to 
uh, advancing women's rights, particularly with the city ordinances that they have. Uh, they do have a men's council. Uh, they have a lot of uh, facilities and institutions that are addressing that are uh, specifically designed and built to address uh, women's concerns. Uh, so. To answer your question, it can potentially be used once again by uh, the ad- supporters of the administration to uh, to justify that the administration is not sexist at all. Because look, we have uh, promoted someone who is an advocate of gender and development, uh, or look, this is the first uh, female uh, chief of uh, chief of office of the National Capital Region Police Office. So definitely the president and the administration uh, is not sexist. But I think uh, teams need to be conscious as well when they use that as an argument against uh, for, uh, the promotion of Colonel Rehano because they also need to uh, situate that in conjunction with the uh, actual capacities that she has as a chief of office because while uh, she is directly mandated as well uh, by the command and instruction of the administration, the actual implementation of these orders can also be modified by her depending on uh, how she sees the implementation of these things. So it's it's important for people to uh, consider politics when debating this issue, but at the same time, the discussion of the politics should not be black and white. It has to be very nuanced to the different actors that are involved. I think before we wrap this up, I just want to ask, like, if there are other arguments you you think that debaters, especially if this was a BP round, for example, and there were closing teams, what other forms of focuses or um, angles do you think can be explored? Because um, I think you already mentioned quite a few, especially in terms of gender and looking at the dynamics and the nuances of Philippine politics in relation to it. But I was just wondering if you had any more ideas that you think would not be very apparent in a motion like this. Uh, Okay, so so far the things that I did talk about were very centered on the specific stakeholders that that have their proper nouns identified. Uh, I think the other things that can be explored is in terms of direction setting. Uh, of the feminist movement. So I think it's, it's important for teens to know and understand where the feminist movement is now and where it envisions itself going forward. Um, because most of the discussion that, uh, that we did talk about previously, uh, were a little too mic, uh, too specific and a bit more micro in terms of their analysis by looking at specific institutions or specific individuals. I think closing teams can explore looking at uh, the wider application of it in the macro uh, by looking at uh, the direction that the feminist movement is going, not just in terms of its relationship with the specific sector of peace and security, but looking at the wider uh, direction of advancing women's rights in general. Um, that's, uh, that's another thing that uh, I think uh, teams can explore in the closing teams, and of course, a lot of the things that may perhaps not be concluded in the opening teams in terms of the implication of how they characterize what her role would be in, ter- uh, in relation to the larger uh, institution of the national police uh, and in relation to 
the larger institution of this administration. They can also look at uh, the implications of these in terms of where the feminist movement uh, would be going as a decision point, because ultimately uh, the motion does ask us to uh, look at this from the perspective of the feminist movements in the Philippines. Thank you so much for that really rich discussion. So I hope that if you're listening to this episode, you got a lot of ideas on how to run this argument, regardless of if you're in government side or opposition side. I think we can now move on to the second motion, which reads, this house believes that the shipping of non-canonical queer characters is a step back for genuine queer representation in media. And I find this motion really interesting because when I first saw it, uh, I, I started thinking about all the shipping wars that happen online and the phenomenon of people like finding characters they really like and then um, shipping them and pairing them up with other characters that they also like or even dislike. So the first question I have is this shipping as a phenomenon, do you think it comes more from viewers or do you think it's something implanted and intended on by authors? Um, what I think is interesting about uh, shipping is that its origin uh, can come from either direction. To a point, I think uh, we can say that the act of shipping and the direction of the actual material that's born out of the shipping becomes a form of communication. May it be uh, a situation where uh, the creators, the author, or the showrunners uh, decide to uh, implemented bits of potential seeds uh, of a prospective relationship or the audience themselves uh, seeing something that the authors, authors themselves may not have seen previously. So for instance, um, there are a lot of shows that actually use this to queer bait particular audiences because they know that uh, there's a lacking in representation of queer characters and holistic queer representation in media. But on the other hand, there are also instances wherein um, it's the audience themselves that first saw the, the prospect of it. And then uh, later on, uh, there are two directions to this one. Either one, uh, the shows uh, pick up on uh, the shipping phenomenon and make adjustments to their storyline to start adopting uh, the shipping, or uh, sometimes they just outrightly deny it and reject it. So there are some examples of this. For instance, um, X-Files, for example, it's a show that started out with the two protagonists not being intended to become uh, lovers. As a matter of fact, uh, that's part of the character design that they have where they're presented to be uh, two polar opposites, at least fundamentally in their beliefs in relation to the work that they do. So one of them is a little uh, skeptical and is not believing of what is not seen and what is not uh, manifested and can be uh, empirically proven. And then the other one uh, believes in something that is not known to us, something that we may not see, etc. Uh, the way that these characters interacted with each other, uh, the fans started seeing it uh, with, a, with a romantic undertone. And because this subset of fans were so uh, eager to ship uh, the couples, uh, eventually the direction of the show started leaning into that and actually made them into a real couple. 
there are also instances, say for instance, uh, in Merlin or Sherlock Holmes, where uh, they actually rejected, uh, the showrunners actually rejected any notion of them uh, being uh, romantically involved. As a matter of fact, even uh, in, in Sherlock Holmes, even the prospect of uh, a potential bisexuality or queer uh, exploration was squashed by the showrunners by saying that that's not really what we intended. Uh, in the case of Merlin, uh, they neither affirm nor deny the bromance between Merlin and Arthur, but uh, they the show did recognize that uh, some of the fans are uh, are very invested in seeing the romantic progression of the story. So, uh, in the subsequent uh, subsequent uh, seasons of the show, they tried to allude it more than in the uh, previous seasons. So to give a short answer to your question, uh, it can either be uh, coming from the audience, it can be intended by the authors themselves, or it can be a combination of both, uh, depending on the success of the shipping and how aggressive the fans are to ship them and how receptive the showrunners are uh, when fans do ship these particular characters. We can move on to the next part of the motion, which is, about genuine representation first thing i wanted to ask was that why is shipping in general significant to representation so like what is the connection between shipping and um representation okay um i think in general teams have to agree that right now there's a uh, there's a lacking of uh queer representation on media and more often than not when there is a show, a movie, or a series that is targeted to queer individuals or to LGBTQI people, uh, they do have a tendency to, tendency to be a bit niche, so it's not as accessible. That's the first one. Uh, second, because there is a lacking of representation in mainstream media, um, people try to look for uh, representation in characters where they see themselves in because if you trace the origins of uh, shipping, it's not because uh, they these characters are uh, queer, but because the audience relates to these characters because of their personality, perhaps their uh, struggles, the problems that they have, and the audience are able to project themselves into these particular characters and when they ship this individual with someone that they see potentially can be romantically involved with them, that's also a way of projecting their desires and their longing for seeing themselves uh, represented in a romantic fashion uh, in mainstream media. Now, you may ask, what's the difference then between this one and, say, BL series or series that are more targeted to queer romance? Um, one of the things that's very noticeable when it comes to um, portrayal of romantic relationships between LGBTQIA individuals is that, one, uh, they tend to fall into very stereotypical portrayals, uh, like it's either very tragic uh, or too good to be true, or sometimes they're, the characters that are being portrayed are, uh, say, for example, for the gay community. Uh, you have 
individuals that are very masculine, very stereotypical, handsome, or beautiful, that is not very representative or accessible to a lot of uh, queer individuals. Whereas if you look at uh, non-LGBTQI characters and series, uh, in, when it comes to the development of their characters, you have a more round character. So they're a little more complex compared to a lot of uh, queer characters. So in terms of seeing themselves in these characters, sometimes uh, queer individuals resonate more uh, to street characters that are more holistic but are not queer compared to uh, queer characters and queer identified characters that either end up with a tragic uh, love story or are killed off or are are not having a prominent role other than being the sidekick of the uh, protagonist or very stereotypical, like they're either very catty, uh, very ditzy, or they're too hypersexual, etc. So I think those are the reasons why uh, queer individuals gravitate towards uh, these characters and why they shift them uh, in relation to queer representation. So it all emanates from that longing to see yourself represented uh, more holistically uh, on screen. So it's not that, uh, another thing is that uh, it's also very common to have, uh, say for example, if we focus on trans uh, transgender individuals, um, the focus and the perspective uh, of the character is also very important because uh, trans representation is about focusing on how it, a transgender character sees the world versus how the world sees that character. And the only way that you can reverse that role is if you have a character that is more holistic, that people can, asso uh, can associate with and not make the entire world of that character be about his or her transness. Or for example, for gay characters, uh, gay characters are used as symbols rather than portrayals of humans that need to have their stories told. So sometimes gay people and the gay relationship that they have are used as a cautionary tale of how um, you're potentially going to suffer a life of misery because of your queerness, etc. So the point is, um, there's a strong longing from the community uh, to see themselves on screen, uh, even for individual. Uh, so this uh, this longing is also manifested differently for those people who are out and proud. It's the longing for. Uh, a more holistic representation, but for those that are in the closet or perhaps living in a very conservative society, it's being able to vicariously live off uh, of the experience of a character that is more holistic and less uh, stereotypical. Thank you. So I guess the next question would be, because that was a very thick discussion already, um, what arguments do you think that government should run? Because there are lots of things that you can see from just like the framing and the descriptions that you already gave. But like just to like crystallize those principles, like what arguments do you expect government to run in this motion? Um, I think firstly, um, they need to learn, uh, they need to explore the dynamics of how uh, shows are created and how markets are created that 
uh, that generate the demand for a particular material. So I think one way to create a parallel to that is by looking at how there's a sudden explosion of BL uh, theories and media uh, coming from various countries in Asia, like Thailand, Taiwan, China, Japan, and even in the Philippines, because there's a strong vocalization of the uh, desire by the queer community to have their representation. So there's also that awareness of uh, the queer community willing to spend their money uh, buying merchandise or even uh, buying concert tickets, buying uh, subscription fees for this material. So I think that's one way of um, pushing the direction of how if we want to have better representation, uh, we should not um, feed off of crumbs uh, that we project onto straight characters. Instead, we need to use that desire and that power that we have to actually demand for it so that the showrunners will listen to us as opposed to uh, custom fitting a car character just to uh, fit our desires. Secondly, I think people should also look into um, how shipping does have a potential to destroy storylines. So for example, uh, genuine representation is when we are invested in a character not only based on uh, how, how we imagine that character's lives would be, but because we journey with that character. So we grow with that character. We suffer the pains and the lows of that character and also celebrate the highs and the victories of that character. Now, when shipping happens, one common tendency is for these individuals to be very invested in the romantic aspect of it and the prospect of romance with another character such that uh, people have a tendency to disregard other dimensions and other aspects of that character's storyline and solely focus on things that, uh, that reinforce their believed uh, prospective romance uh, with another character. So that also means that in the process, they're actually flattening what potentially was uh, or could have been a more well-rounded character. Uh, apart from that, uh, there's also a uh, there's also instances where uh, there's also an instance where uh, fans tend to be very aggressive when it comes to their shipping that um, it forces uh, showrunners to make drastic adjustments just so uh, they can accommodate uh, these desires by the by the audience. So it makes the entire show suffer. But at the same time, um, the audiences themselves, because the shipping, or sorry, because the romantic, the, uh, the romantic reward that the show customized to accommodate their fantasies wasn't rooted deeply in the narrative of the story, ends up half-baked. So even if you do end up seeing the relationship fully realized, uh, it's not as rewarding because the way that the relationship was built was not integrated into the DNA of the show. So all of these things can be factored in when you're looking at queer representation. You may also want to look at how uh, prospectively uh, actors that are playing these characters 
would potentially be asked about these things uh, in their press junkets uh, or in their interviews and how sometimes um, they may reinforce negative stereotypes or may potentially even uh, say things that are not in favor of the characters that they are playing. And I think this is very important as well because uh, you need to have individuals that are just as invested as you are to the characters that they are playing because their ability to recognize the humanity of your of the characters that you're shipping also adds a level of authenticity and a level of depth to how they portray this particular character. So I think those are some of the things that uh, government can potentially explore. So I guess now we have to reverse it and try to see what, in your opinion, do you think opposition can run in an argument like this? Like, What benefits are there, given all the uh, arguments you ran in government? It seems really thick and really hard to go against. But what do you think would uh, opposition have to run in a motion like this to go against a strong government like you set up? Um, I think the first thing that they would have to do is challenge a lot of the characterizations as to how the decision-making when it comes to coming up with uh, with shows with queer characters or that respond to the shipping actually happens because um, while there are shows that did listen to fans and eventually resulted to either botching that relationship by giving them a half-baked conclusion or... Uh, actually making them end up as couples, I think the first thing that you can uh, that you can say is that these take time and these are not always a guarantee. And given the lack of um, queer representation in mainstream media, uh, you cannot simply just tell a queer individual that wants to see themselves validated and the identities that they have validated on mainstream uh, television wait until the world is ready for them. So I think it's a natural human desire to see yourself uh, humanized uh, on screen, on media. So I think in the process, um, you're allowing that moment of reprieve for these individuals uh, in contrast to the perhaps less than acceptable reality that they exist in. That's one. Uh, Second, I also think that teams can uh, can strategically say that um, when you do invest in shipping, it doesn't mean that you're already um, canceling out any and all alternatives for genuine queer representation. As a matter of fact, um, that also becomes a signal for uh, for companies that perhaps previously were not invested in uh, in coming up with genuinely queer characters to start thinking about the potential of it because if there's such a strong fan base for actually not queer people, uh, then perhaps there is money to be had and there's actually a market for a genuine queer uh, queer character or queer-centered uh, narrative. Of course, the other side can potentially say that, well, the company will just continue uh, giving us uh, queer baiting and characters that they will hint to be queer, but not really, uh, especially because people are already profiting from it anyway. So there's no incentive really for them to come up with a genuinely queer representative media. But at the same time, these corporations and these companies also recognize that if they do make it canon and if they do make it explicit, 
the fans are going to be more invested in it. So there's also that bit of discussion. Uh, apart from that, there's also uh, what I've said earlier. Um, a lot of these uh, media are mainstream, which means that in, say, if you live in a very conservative family somewhere uh, in a redneck state or perhaps a deeply religious family, say, in the Philippines, for example, uh, you often watch these shows with your family members or probably bigoted, uh, which means that even if there are better alternatives out there, the likelihood of you having access to these media is still very less likely. And even if people will say, oh, you can... Uh, subscribe online, but some family members do snoop in your uh, search history or sometimes even if you subscribe to uh, paid services like Netflix or uh, HBO Go, etc. The fact that the choices that you've selected and the shows that you've watched can potentially appear and become a point of discussion by your bigoted family is something that a lot of people does not have the luxury of uh, of having with their family. So I think this is a way for them to compromise being able to watch something with their family and live off of that fantasy that clearly they resonate with, but without the need to have to discuss it with their family members. Or if you're very deeply closeted, it's a way for you to still have that legitimacy of the identity that you have without being forced to confront the need for you to come out in the open. Um, there's also a possible discussion of how um, ultimately the, when you ship characters, the focus of it really is based on how you're able to identify with these characters uh, despite their gender or despite their sex, which means that in the greater scheme of things, it emphasizes on the commonality that queer individuals have with everyone else as opposed to making the story that they have uh, be centered on their queerness, which I think a lot of uh, queer individuals are not comfortable with uh, as well, because I think a lot of people, uh, queer individuals, would prefer to be looked at no differently compared to heterosexual individuals. And I think these mainstream media, which uh, allows for greater uh, space for a more holistic character, uh, gives them that compared to uh, queer representation in a queer-specific media. Our last motion for this set is about finding allies. It asks the question, should the LGBTQI movement and its allies in the Philippines co-opt religious groups in order to pass the SOGI-based anti-discrimination bill or, or act? What would it mean to co-opt um, religious groups? Like, Does it mean taking a religious stance on something else? Does it mean finding a favorable reinterpretation of scripture? What exactly does it entail when we say, um, let's co-opt religious groups? Um, I think some of those things that you have mentioned, Kyle, already fits into this. Um, what I think is important is uh, for teams to not overly fixate themselves on the itemized uh means and ways of how religious organizations can be co-opted. But I think what they need to understand and really have to defend is that potentially you may have to make compromises. Potentially you would have to make uh, sacrifices uh, to build this particular alliance unless 
because it's impossible for them to have a one-sided debate where they will say, oh, of course, these religious organizations are going to give them everything that they want because the things that you have identified either finding a more favorable interpretation in the scripture or them uh, standing up for other uh, religious issues or social issues, um, of course, these religious institutions would support them for as long as it's aligned with their um, with their dogmas and what they fun, uh, fundamentally believe in. But of course, we need to understand as well that there will be compromises. So I think this, the first strategy either for both government and opposition is to acknowledge that, one, there will be a trade-off, but the trade-off has to be well within reason. So I think opposition uh, should not be caught in a situation where they would insist on government bench to defend a religious organization that is very bigoted and is very anti-LGBTQI because obviously no sensible government bench would defend that scenario. So I think government bench and opposition need to agree that there will be trade-offs, but the strategy is, one, what these specific trade-offs are, but two, uh, that these trade-offs have to be well within uh, bounds of reason for both government and opposition. If it's already established that compromises need to be made for both government and opposition, what is the context that may force the movement to go through these compromises? So what frame would you set this debate in? What are some barriers faced by the movement in passing the Anti-Discrimination Act? I think one of the important uh, things that teams have to is a specific nuance why the motion is worded as uh, Philippine uh, LGBTQI Filipino movement and the specific context is the passing of the uh, SOGI or SOGI um, Equality Bill or SOGI-based Anti-Discrimination Act because oftentimes teams would argue uh, legislation or uh, the LGBTQI movement in the Philippines, the way they would argue these uh, these elements in a Western liberal democracy, which is a very different context because admittedly in the Philippines, um, as much as there's a prog- there's progress in terms of uh, equality for, uh, uh, for LGBTQI people, there's still a huge battle to be fought. And the fact that we still are arguing whether or not uh, SOGSC-based anti-discrimination acts have to be passed uh, it's a clear indication of where we are uh, in terms of how far we've gone. So I think that's the first context. People need to be aware of the reality of the LGBTQI existence in the context of the Philippines. The second one, I think, and the reason why um, I also thought of having this motion is teams need to explore the process of uh, how legislations work. Um, I'm sure all of us have already experienced how conveniently teams would argue the very simplistic uh, process of create the traction. Traction creates discourse. Discourse creates legislation. But in reality, that's not how exactly it works. Uh, the process, the legislative process is a little more complex and more complicated. Uh, a lot of teams sometimes simplify this by just saying, oh, it's a numbers game, but what exactly does that mean? So you need to find allies within these, uh, within Congress and within Senate. And 
one way of doing that is by looking at who these candidates usually get their endorsements from. And sometimes it's the religious institution. So for as long as that's factored in, that can also be considered in the legislative process. Uh, but at the same time, there's also a nuance to how a lot of these religious organizations actually have uh, party lists or align themselves with party lists uh, within Congress. And a lot of the senators that we have are actually very religious. So these are also very important characterizations that teams have to be aware of for them to understand why there's a need for them to co-opt or not co-opt uh, religious organizations. So I think those are some of the important uh, no, uh, nuances. Lastly, I think uh, we also need to, uh, teams also need to be aware where religious organizations are. Uh, when it comes to supporting the SOGI ba uh, based anti discrimination act, because one of the common tendencies for teens is to homogenize all religious institutions and characterize them as either black, either very against it or um, a nuanced version of it. But if you also notice a lot of the recent press uh, rallies and press junkets that uh, proponents of the SOGSE-based Anti-Discrimination Act have, they actually invite nuns or priests that are a little more liberal to be part of their uh, propaganda to gain more traction uh, in support for the bill. So I think it was really good to highlight all the nuances, especially since debaters do have a tendency to just make it about a numbers game or um, quickly talk about legis legislation without really like breaking it down as to how it happens. So I guess for government, my question would be, how would you break down the role of the religious groups? And what do you think government can run to prove that the movement is much stronger with the association and the allyship of religious groups? Um, the first thing is for people to acknowledge that religious organizations and religious life with uh, your, li your experience with the divine is integral to a lot of Filipinos still. So uh, to deny the, the power and influence of religion amongst Filipinos um, will be dangerous for uh, for the government bench especially again if we connect this to the process, legislative process a lot of the legislators that we have come from uh provinces come from cities or come from lgus that are very religious and oftentimes these individuals have close connection uh with their archbishops with their um religious uh sects within that particular uh communities that they have so co-opting religious organization becomes an easier way to or becomes a channel as well to get to these legislators but at the same time um a lot of the consequences of what happens because this is where i think teams can also uh, assume the best case scenario and say that uh, let's assume that the bill gets passed. When the bill gets passed, that's not the end of the story. It also requires that in the process of its implementation, there's going to be a great social acceptance for it. So on the one hand, teams can say, well, as long as it becomes a law, um, its normative power will eventually take, play, uh, take, uh, take effect. 
and people who are against it will eventually have no choice but to obey it because otherwise they might potentially get punished uh, by the law. But on the other hand, it's also important to situate that process by already uh, conditioning people or helping them acclimatize to the idea of equality on the basis, regardless of your uh, SOGST, because if you have religious organizations and uh, religious organizations actively talking out, talking about it, it creates conversations even within conservative groups. So for instance, one of the things that you can say is if you are, say, Ladlad party list or an openly LGBTQI group, the likelihood of you being received in a tightly religious community is very less likely. But if you channel the discourse through uh, the religious figures or through their religious institution, it's more likely for them to be more receptive of it. And I think that also trickles down to how this opens up conversations even within families. So say, for example, if you have a conservative parent that is so against the idea of homosexuality, but then uh, their priest, for example, starts talking about it, that perhaps opens them up to the possibility of having that discussion with their uh, queer child. So I think that's an opportunity to be had as well. So there are layers of how uh, teams can approach it. So from the macro down to the micro level, but at the same time, um, you can also further discuss the legislative process by saying that um, this is an important uh, sector to have as your ally as well, because uh, if we reference it to some legislations that we've had that have the veneer of being progressive, but in reality isn't, we just need to look at what happened in the passing of the reproductive health bill that we had. Um, it took forever for it to become a law, but when it did become a law, um, it lost a lot of significant provisions. And how did this happen? It happened when uh, Senate and Congress did not have the same understanding and agreement as to the specific provisions. And because of that, they had to arrive at a bicameral uh, meeting uh, to agree what specific provisions to be adopted or not be, to be adopted. A lot of the people that sat in that committee were actually religious individuals. And these religious individuals were the ones that really fought to strike down specific provisions that they deem a little to be uh, deemed to be very progressive. So if these individuals get co-opted uh, by co-opting their religious organizations as well, um, it's more likely for us to have a bill that is reflective of its true intention. So there's a lot of dimensions that people, uh, the teams can explore uh, when it comes to talking about this particular motion. On the other hand, the strategy on opposition bench would be to probably highlight the trade-offs that you need because like, even assuming that all of the benefits do happen, and I still believe that opposition might be able to challenge those things i think opposition should be able to like highlight what we stand to lose even if we ally with them so i wanted to ask what is the best way for opposition to frame like the trade-offs that would likely happen if we do ally with the if we do ally with religious groups um the first thing that i would say is that uh opposition teams should not be, uh, 
opposition team should not be afraid to have uh, to defend trade offs. Um, I think um, one of the things that can be said about this is for them to say that uh, the trade offs exist, and it's not just a simple acknowledgement that trade offs exist. Because huh? one of the things that we also notice about teams is they would pretend to say, oh, we acknowledge that there is a trade-off, but when you look at the actual argument that they have, uh, they don't reflect that. So I think uh, some of the trade-offs that they could have is that perhaps um, the the compromises would lead to the provisions of the bill being watered down or not actually as representative. They would have to uh, relax some of the... Um, provisions that may be deemed as too progressive by these religious organizations just so they can co-op them, etc. Um, one of the things that's, uh, that's very important is for them to highlight what the bill is for and who the bill is for and why it's so important uh, to ensure that the most salient, which may be deemed too progressive uh, provisions of the bill have to become non-negotiable and how that uh, decision has to be controlled by them uh, exclusively. But second, um, there are natural uh, allies within this religious organization that do reach out to them without them having to co-opt them because the act of co-opting means that uh, there is something that you offer or there is something that you're willing to compromise with them just so they will join the alliance. But I think you can also focus on highlighting how uh, if these individuals really do care about the movement and if these individuals really are genuinely supportive of the cause, they will find their way into the movement uh, without us having to co-opt them because they will be uh, actively supporting it regardless whether we reach out to them or we prompt them to do that. They will do that on their own voluntarily. And I think that's a more auspicious place to begin the alliance rather than us actively seeking out these religious organizations. Because uh, in the process, you might, like what I said earlier, end up making too many compromises that you lose the focus on what the bill genuinely is for. Uh, second, you can also talk about how the, the initial bill that may be passed may not be a true reflection of where we want the movement to uh, to to go in terms of the benefits that's going to be afforded to it, but you can also analyze how uh, laws sometimes just need uh, laws exist in a way like building blocks that you need to have uh, the first legislation first and then later on can be expanded. So, for instance, there are a lot of legislations that we have uh, that to some extent. Um, appears to not really favor the people that it seeks to protect. So, for instance, the anti-rape law that we have uh, obviously still provides a general protection to women and young girls who are the more common victims of these, uh, of these crimes. But there are a lot of provisions in it that are not exactly uh, considerate of the real situations and the real lives of these women. Say, for instance, uh, there's a forgiveness clause wherein uh, if your perpetrator chooses to marry you, uh, it cancels out the crime or how the age uh, of sexual consent is a little too low, etc. So these, uh, these uh, 
amendments are being tackled and talked about, but they're not being talked about and they're not being pushed without any foundation. So the foundation was already laid down, which makes it easier for them to demand for these amendments because the foundation is already there. So I think similarly, um, it's okay for us to have uh, the legislation, the first, even just the acknowledgement that there is a need to equally protect all individuals regardless of your SOGSD. Uh, if that's already there, it makes it easier for local governments that are more progressive to start legislating uh, in similar fashion as well. Uh, th there are a lot of LGUs that are already doing it on their own, but it makes it more uh, it makes it more likely for more LGUs to follow suit if there is a national legislation. And eventually, um, possible amendments can be introduced a little later on when. We see when we see that there is a strategic uh, opening for it. So thank you so much for all those arguments. Uh, I found it really insightful. Um, despite the motion being very common and very well, not very common, but something that it's not very new to a lot of debaters. I like the fresh twist to it, and like there's so much more to explore. Apparently, um, if you just had the correct matter and the correct nuancing to do so, and I think the the same goes for all of these motions. So I really like the set. Um, thank you so much for being here on this interview. I liked how the first motion was a mix of politics and. Uh, gender, the second motion was also media, and the third was also about religion. So I really like the diversity in the set that you provided. So before we end this segment and before we end this episode, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests, um, which would be, what would your advice be to debaters who are just starting out on their debate journeys? Okay, um, I think this is also... Um a way to explain the thought process that I had when it comes uh, when it when I decided what motions I would include in the motion set and that is it's very important for people to understand that um concepts and issues that we learn in debate have very specific application to them once we open our eyes to the real world and the realities that we have in the world so I think that's the first thing, uh, because what I notice with a lot of new debaters now is they argue, uh, they argue the way they think established debaters uh, would argue, which means that a lot of their lived experience as individuals that are unique to them, uh, they often silence that to fit into the mold of what they think and envision uh, debaters should sound like, should argue like should debate like. That's why if you notice, uh, and this is not to diss anyone who does this, I understand the reason why they're doing it, the new debaters. But if you look at a lot of the new debaters that they that we have, they sound like, they argue like, and even the mannerisms that they had when we still had uh, real face-to-face -face debate uh, is a very, uh, is a varied replica of a more established uh Debater. So I think that's the first one. Uh, you need to trust that what you bring to the table based on the unique lived experience that you have can be a rich source of nuance to a lot of the things that you can potentially argue in. But at the same time, uh, it's your way of uh, finding meaning in the existence that you have in the context of 
uh, of the debate. That's the first one. Second, um, and this goes out, uh, and uh, and my personal bias to uh, teams and debaters that are coming from uh, the provinces, the Visayas, Mindanao, and even uh, non-NCR uh, debate institutions. Um, based on experience, we do have a tendency to sabotage ourselves when we compete against more established institutions, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, when we're faced with more established institutions, there's always that little voice in our heads that would say, uh, we're already losing this round, or we're not going to do well in this round, or the best that we can do is get a second or third in this round. Um, what I want younger debaters from the provinces to realize is that, uh, yes, a lot of these institutions may have access to better training, to more experience, to more international exposure, but that does not mean that you're any less or that you're less capable than they are. But where it begins is your belief that you can actually win against them. And that completely changes the demeanor that you have. It completely changes your confidence and it changes how your mind works during prep time and how your mind functions in the middle of the round. So I think that's very important uh, for, uh, for provincial institutions and debaters to consciously think about and fight against, uh, especially with, when they're competing against more established institutions and debaters. Um, the last one, I think, um, for new debaters, um, try to have fun. Uh, while winning is a very important uh, thing to aspire for, um, realize that the things that you will learn in debates are things that more often than not you will not learn anywhere else. You probably would not learn it in your classrooms. Um, but these are things that hopefully will not just end in the corners of the debating room or in the debating world that you exist in. Uh, I hope you find ways to genuinely apply it uh, in your real life and the decisions that you're going to make in the real world because I do have this strong belief that uh, the debaters that we have right now are potentially going to change uh, the world, the country, because these are individuals that have a strong sense of themselves uh, these are individuals that are very opinionated. These are individuals that are uh, potentially going to be movers and shakers uh, in the future. So I really hope that whatever it is that we learn in the debate, uh, in debate, will not just remain there, but we actually have to find a way to apply it in the real world. So those are the three things that I would uh, leave them. And lastly, for new debaters, if you are of age and if you are not a registered voter, please find a way to register and make sure that you vote by 2022. It's very important for you to use that power. Thank you so much. We agree with basically everything that you said. Please register to vote. Uh, it's an incredible power and you might not think that it's a big deal, but your voice does matter. Your voice does count. We also absolutely agree that um, the voice of this generation of debaters and all the future ones are definitely going to change the world. And that's why it's so important for us to develop um, people's ability to 
think critically and express themselves and um in all the many many ways that um change the world so that's it for this episode of debatable and this post-debate analysis thank you again Renee, for all the insight we'll see everyone in the next round bye-bye bye bye